I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. This episode was recently recorded as the first Hear the Dance Live during an Inside NYCB program at Lincoln Center. The focus is the collaboration between George Balanchine and Igor Stravinsky. In this episode, you'll hear me in conversation with New York City Ballet Orchestra conductor Clotilde Otranto and Kay Mezzo, one of Balanchine's ballerinas who is now the chairman of faculty at the School of American Ballet. There will be beautiful piano and violin accompaniments from several city ballet musicians. You'll also have the chance to hear the dance like never before, hearing the feet and the breath of the city ballet dancers who performed as part of this onstage presentation. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone. My name is Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and I host the Hear the Dance episodes of City Ballet, the podcast, which explores the history and the rich life of the ballets in our company's repertory. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Inside New York City Ballet, and I'm also glad to be able to tell you that tonight we're recording the first Hear the Dance live podcast episode. I'd like to introduce to you Rick Rubin, who will be providing our American Sign Language interpretation tonight. This evening, we celebrate the singular creative partnership between the composer Igor Stravinsky and New York City Ballet founding choreographer George Balanchine. Theirs was one of the most significant collaborations in 20th century art. Of the more than 400 works that Balanchine choreographed in his lifetime, 39 were set to Stravinsky's music. Stravinsky only wrote a handful of ballets, especially for Balanchine, notably Orpheus and Agon. But even when Balanchine came to choreograph scores that Stravinsky had not originally intended for dance, these ballets looked as if the two men had worked on them hand in hand. And this was because these two great artists could speak each other's language. Stravinsky was a balletically attuned composer with a deep knowledge of ballet's movement language, its history, and its repertory. And Balanchine was a musically attuned choreographer. He had studied piano, composition, counterpoint. He would even make the piano reductions of the orchestral scores that he was choreographing, which the pianist would use to accompany the rehearsals for his ballets. Balanchine famously said, see the music, hear the dance. And this conception of Balanchine's, of ballet as the visualization of music, is perhaps most clearly shown in his Stravinsky ballets. Over the course of this evening's program, we will explore the different layers of life connections and aesthetic priorities that united these two great artists. We'll look at their work from both the musician and the dancer's perspective. We'll see excerpts from Stravinsky Balanchine ballets that will take us on a journey from 1928 to 1972. And we'll hear from both Stravinsky and Balanchine in their own words. 
As we proceed through our brief hour together, it's my hope that those of you who are already deeply invested and have great love for the Stravinsky Balanchine works, that you'll find some fresh insights into them tonight. And it's also my hope that those of you for whom the Balanchine Stravinsky canon is new, that you will see and be amazed by the excerpts and that your appetite will be whetted to come and see and hear these ballets in their entirety. I'll be painting in broad strokes tonight, and so I'd like to anchor our time in seven major themes that connect Balanchine and Stravinsky. Theme one, both men came from musical stock. Stravinsky's father, Fyodor, was an operatic bass. Mr. Balanchine's father, Meliton, was a composer. Theme two, both men's biographies followed a similar westward journey. Having been raised and educated in St. Petersburg, Russia, each rose to international prominence through their work with Diaghilev's Ballet Russe in Europe. Stravinsky, with his rapturous Russian-themed ballets, Firebird, Petrushka, and the world-shaking Rite of Spring. Balanchine, with his Apollo to Stravinsky's music, and Prodigal Son, in collaboration with Sergei Prokofiev. The two ultimately landed in the United States, Mr. Balanchine settled here in New York, where he became the father of ballet in America through his choreography, his teaching, and his founding of both the School of American Ballet and the New York City Ballet with the titanic and visionary arts patron Lincoln Kirstein. Stravinsky ultimately settled in Los Angeles, where he would break into new territory with his works that deployed and extended the 12-tone compositional technique of Arnold Schoenberg. Theme three, both Stravinsky and Balanchine believed that a creator god had given them their artistic gifts and the task of cultivating those gifts. This is what Stravinsky said. I regard my talents as God-given. When in early childhood I discovered that I had been made the custodian of musical aptitudes, I pledged myself to God to be worthy of their development. This sense of calling to their artwork by a higher power also accounts for these two artists' indomitable work ethic. Both continued to forge new works into their old age. Balanchine summarized this by saying of God, he has said to me, you are going to teach and serve and make them dance. And I know that nothing anybody on earth could do could prevent me from doing what he wants me to. Balanchine also famously said, God creates, I assemble what God created. And Stravinsky shared the same sentiment. And it's a key to understanding why both men did not think of themselves as inspired creators, but as disciplined craftsmen who found freedom working within the constraints of their art form's technique. Theme four. Both men embraced the traditions of their art form with a sense of renewal. They found clues for new pieces in the works of their artistic predecessors like Pergolesi, Mozart, Tchaikovsky, and Petipa. Theme five, both men worked in a wide variety of styles. They made artistic gems for the opera house, the ballet stage, Broadway, Hollywood, and the circus tent. Theme six, there is a charged silence in both men's works between Stravinsky's notes and between Balanchine's steps. Theme seven, 
Both men's pursuit of a purity of artistic expression was often criticized as being too abstract. Balanchine responded to this by saying, and I don't understand either when Stravinsky's music or my ballets are described that way. No piece of music, no dance can in itself be abstract. You hear a physical sound, humanly organized, performed by people, or you see moving before you dancers of flesh and blood in a living relation to each other. What you hear and see is completely real. We will now get to see and hear artists in that living relationship to each other in excerpts from several Stravinsky Balanchine ballets. The first excerpt that we'll see is from the 1928 ballet Apollo, the first true collaboration between Stravinsky and Balanchine. The work was made during their ballet Russe years. It hearkened back to the Baroque grandeur of the court of Louis XIV, the Sun King, under whose patronage ballet came of age. Stravinsky based his score on the music of Jean-Baptiste Lully, who was Louis XIV's court composer, and on the poetry of Nicolas Boileau. Balanchine described working on this ballet as a revelation and as the turning point in his life. Stravinsky's distilled score for string orchestra had taught Balanchine that he too could simplify his art. He could simplify his own choreographic ideas, limiting himself to only using steps that were related to each other. Balanchine summarized the plot of Apollo by saying, a wild, untamed youth learns nobility through art. We will now see Apollo's first variation, which occurs at the beginning of the ballet. It's before he's received his education from the three muses, and we will see in the dance the young god as he finds his legs. Please welcome to the stage New York City Ballet principal dancer Adrian Danchig-Waring, New York City Ballet solo pianist Elaine Shelton, and New York City Ballet Orchestra Concertmaster Arturo Delmoni, who will provide the accompaniment for this excerpt.
Thank you, Adrian, Elaine, and Arturo. I'd now like to welcome to the stage one of the New York City Ballet Orchestra's resident conductors, Clotilde Otranto, who will illuminate some of the musician's perspective on Stravinsky and Balanchine's ballets. Good evening, friends of Music and Ballet. It's a pleasure to be here. And Silas, thanks for inviting me. How kind of you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Clotilde, you have layers of connection to both Balanchine and Stravinsky. Like Mr. B, you were trained and danced classical ballet at a high level, even achieving the rank of principal dancer at the Teatro Municipal in Sao Paulo in your native Brazil. And like Stravinsky, you studied law, and you have been both an accomplished concert pianist and conductor. How do these different facets of your artistry inform your conducting here at New York City Ballet? Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> okay, I wanna, I wanna start with what is conducting, because maybe you are not aware, maybe, of what we do. But it is communicating musical ideas through conducting gestures and body language, which can include even facial expressions. And the conductor shows the music with movement. And he or she uh, transformed the musical emotion to motion. So as you see, there is a parallel with ballet dancing, except that conductors have to prepare the music before it happens. <clears throat> they anticipate the sound that's about to come. So you conduct what you know, and actually also you conduct what you are. And for sure, you become a better conductor for ballet if, first of all, you have to be accomplished solo musician. Uh, if you go, not only for ballet, for also <clears throat> orchestra and um, opera, but um, it's better if you go to conducting school because it's easier. <laughs> if you really have an orchestra for you, for you to practice, that's mm -hmm. your instrument. And in the case of ballet, if you dance a high level, also helps because you know, sometimes you know the choreography. Mm. We don't do Balanchine in Brazil much, but you know the steps, you know? So it's better if you know, so you can anticipate your movement. It's better if you have a broad education, you know, arts, life, <clears throat> as many experiences as possible to develop instincts and taste. So, and then there's another thing that is a little deeper. Inspire other people. You see, you have to inspire audience, musicians, and ballet dancers. So, we try to have the spirit elevated in order to inspire somebody else. And it's a work in progress. Now, none of this is necessarily true. As you see in Europe, they start conducting at repetitors at the pit, accompanying singers. Others, Toscanini, I'm not comparing myself with anything, but Toscanini um, never studied, then he went to conducting school. You know, uh, so it's not necessarily true. But um, you have the better prepared you are, the better conductor you become. Mm. And it's a work in progress, it never ends. Mm. Clotilde, what sets apart the Stravinsky Balanchine Ballets from the rest of our company's repertory? I think there are two aspects. 
aspects. Stravinsky and Balanchine had a close relationship like Tchaikovsky and Petipa. So they had a huge admiration for each other. They worked together closely, and it was a real collaboration. If he, I know Balanchini loved Tchaikovsky and Mozart, but he never met them, so it's different. And also, the diversity. Stravinsky had many different phases. The Russian phase, like Firebird, the dodecaphonic phase, like Agon, and the neoclassical, like the Apollo and our dance concertant. So he had to deal with all, those, all this diversity, and I think it, it was special. Mm. What has Stravinsky taught you about Balanchine, or perhaps what do you think Stravinsky taught Balanchine? Well, I think that Balanchine did not choreograph to show the steps, but to show the music. And and the other way around would be Balanchine taught me about Stravinsky. The silence in music is as important as the music itself. If you see when we, are, we have a rest in the orchestra, it's such a tension, it's beautiful, and Balanchine really choreographed accordingly, sometimes with steps, sometimes not. And it, it is really brilliant. What kinds of aesthetic priorities did Balanchine and Stravinsky share? Well, I think that there is a specific speed that makes the music sound perfect. Any music, there is a, sits with the sound of the orchestra. It makes sense, that speed. Other speed, not as much. It is different from the speed of when a piano is playing a reduction in, re in rehearsals. By the way, I don't know if you know, but Balanchini would make the piano reductions from the scores. Imagine what kind of musician he was, you know? And um, if, it's, if it's not the right tempo, slower or faster, it would destroy the cosmic order. <clears throat> and there's a book, it's called Car Charles Joseph, about Stravinsky and Mr. Balanchine, you know very well. Balanchine learned with Stravinsky that he had to choreograph to the speed indicated by the composer. So that's why some dancers, said, and, and normally it was fast tempi, said that Mr. B would carry around one of these, the metronome, when he was choreographing Stravinsky to make sure that he was matching what Stravinsky asked. And uh, probably it was very discreet. And so what looks, sometimes what looks good, is not necessarily the most comfortable for the dancers. And I think you know that, we discussed that. It's not necessarily their best. They, Balanchini want to challenge the dancers, challenge the dancers with the music. And, and he, he thought that it was the best way to make them move forward to the next level. Mm -hmm. Even if later they would dance a little slower, but just to make them excited. So this is one aspect, tempo. And the other is perform the music as written. According to Stravinsky, the composer's music was not to be interpreted, but executed. There's a wonderful video of Stravinsky doing a rehearsal of Pulcinella with the orchestra, and he goes, Mr. Oboe, as it is written. <laughs> 
The next excerpt that we're going to see is from the 19, originally 1944, but we're going to see a bit of the 1972 version of it, yeah. the Danse Concertante. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I just conducted that yesterday. I still have two performances. It's, uh, it's fun. It's what we call Commedia d'arte, dell'arte. Uh, love stories, uh, think about Downton Abbey, servers, you know, <laughs> intrigue, um, you know, and secrets. At this point, uh, Stravinsky was not anymore the caveman, the ride of a spring. No, it was not that. But it's neoclassical. Apollo, concertant, costumes and scenery are stunning from the first production. Eugene Berman. Yes, and he kept it because he loved it so much. There are four pas de trois, two girls and one boy and one pas de deux. And they do all kinds of fun movements. I love when they come like this. It's so much fun. And uh, it's catchy, it's funky, it's goofy, it's romantic, and it show, the music shows the woodwind solely a lot. And it's comic with almost acrobatic moves. It's fantastic. And we see in the choreography, Balanchine's being influenced by jazz, by tap, by the works that he was seeing on Broadway and that he was making on Broadway. You'll see the dancers stamping like tap dancers. You'll see them thrusting their hips like jazz dancers. You'll see them kicking their legs as if they were in a Broadway show. And you'll also see a visualization of Stravinsky's musical wit, with Balanchine even having the man execute the normal beaded jumps, but he also does the beats with his hands as he does the beats with his legs. So let's now see Kanan Weber, Alexa Maxwell, and India Bradley dance the fourth pas de trois from Danse Concertante. There's a fun connection between what we've just seen and what we're about to see. 
Das Concertant was composed by Stravinsky in 1942. In 1944, Balanchine set it as a ballet for the then New York-based ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And in that version of Das Concertant, in that fourth pas de trois, the dancers were Mary Ellen Moylan, Nicholas Magalanis, and one Maria Talchief for whom the next excerpt we're going to see was choreographed. We're going to see the opening solo of The Firebird, which Mr. Balanchine choreographed in 1949, to the score that Stravinsky had written in 1910 for Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. It was really Stravinsky's international debut, getting this enormous commission from the Ballet Russe. And in it, we hear the rich color and orchestration that Stravinsky had learned from his teacher, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. We're going to see this opening solo. We're going to hear the fluttering and the sweeping of the Firebird's movement in the music. And we're going to see Balanchine's dazzling choreographic invention for that music. And it will be danced tonight by Ashley Bowder. And before we see it, there's a little fun story, which after the 1949 premiere of Firebird for New York City Ballet, which was our company's first real popular success, Stravinsky sent a Western Union telegram to Balanchine, and he said, congratulations on my old fur bird. And Tall Chief, who was married to Mr. Balanchine at the time, asked Mr. B, and he's, he was convinced that it was not a typo, but that Stravinsky, ever witty, was making a joke about how Balanchine had brought new life to a ballet that at that time was so old that it was gathering moss. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley, and thank you, New York City Ballet pianist Alan Moverman, who provided the accompaniment for that excerpt. You had to use your imagination a little bit at the end, because she would have done those chene turns and then been caught by Prince Ivan, but we had no Prince Ivan tonight, so thank you for rolling with us with that. We'll now turn our attention to the dancer's perspective on the Stravinsky Balanchine Ballets, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the stage one of the great Balanchine ballerinas and the current 
chairman of faculty at the School of American Ballet, Kay Mazo. Kay, you have a deep embodied knowledge of Balanchine's choreography and especially of these Stravinsky ballets. With the exception of Danse Concertante, you danced principal roles in all of the ballets that we're seeing excerpts from tonight. So we're just really grateful to have your insights tonight. In your two decades with City Ballet, you danced a vast variety of works, one of them being Agon, which is the next ballet that we'll see. Mr. Balanchine choreographed it with Stravinsky in mind and working very closely in 1957. And before we dive into Agon in particular, I know you have some, some words from Stravinsky and Balanchine that you'd like to share with us. Well, it, it's because when Silas first talked to me about this, he said, tell me about Stravinsky. And I said, I never met him. I, I can't help you, but I have read things. And I just thought this was very interesting to hear. Stravinsky wrote, first of all, that he couldn't see how someone could be a choreographer he was not, if he was not a musician first. He said, and this is a quote, to see Balanchine's choreography is to hear the music with one's eyes. His choreography emphasizes relationships in my music, which I had hardly been aware of in the same way as Balanchine. The performance was like a tour of a building that I was the architect of, seeing all the nooks and crannies. And I thought it was a perfect way of explaining how Balanchine took the beautiful Stravinsky music and showed us exactly what the music was saying. And Stravinsky was also astonished when he, Mr. Balanchine would sometimes ask the dancers to count the music without the, without the music playing. And Stravinsky said the dancers understood the music almost better than sometimes the orchestra did. So. Uh, I was, I was very impressed by all of that, but um, yes. That's wonderful. Agon was choreographed in 1957. It's a Greek word. It's the root that we, it's one of the words we get the words agony and protagonist and antagonist out of. It means contest or struggle. And it was the third part of Balanchine and Stravinsky's Greek trilogy, beginning with Apollo in 1928, continuing with Orpheus and then Agon. What was your journey in this masterpiece? Well, when I first saw Agon, I was a student at our School of American Ballet, and I had only seen Mr. Balanchine's Nutcracker in Chicago, where I came from. And I loved that, and I saw Maria Tallchief dancing it, and Tanny, and it, it was so beautiful. And I saw Firebird, and, and then I came, we, my parents moved with me to New York, and I saw Balanchine's Swan Lake and Stars and Stripes, and then I saw Agon, which I couldn't understand at, at all. There was Diana Adams with Arthur Mitchell dancing and looking so beautiful. But I, the ballet was hard for me to really um, put my arms around until I started learning it. And then the challenge that was there, and Balanchine always said, you know, he, he wanted to challenge us. And he did. I mean, he would stand in that front wing every night and he'd say, surprise me. And so that's what you ended, we tried to end up doing. I, I first learned the pas de trois that was done for, um, well, Allegra Kent did it, uh, Melissa Hayden did it, Violette Verdi did it. I learned that first, and then I learned the uh, pas de deux uh, fairly quickly, but I had Arthur Mitchell as a partner, 
who it was choreographed on. And Arthur just, if you knew Arthur, he'd throw, he threw his head back with a big, ha, don't worry, I'm, I'm here. We're going to do it together. And, and it, was, it was the most, you put those two people up on the stage and there's a story. I know there's no story in it, but there's a story when you see it. And the dancers, everybody who dances it, it's a very special ballet for everyone. Do you remember some of Balanchine's particular coaching for the Pada de Nagon? He, he told us not to act, no acting, do, do the steps, movement, big, and make it interesting. And, you know, with Mr. Balanchine, you didn't have to have the, the most perfect turnout or the most beautiful feet, but did did he want to watch you dance? And if he did, then you were interesting, and then he, then he used you. So um, make it interesting. Mm. And you all took Agon with you on that historic tour back to Russia. What was that experience? We did, and the Russians um, were um, mesmerized. I mean, they saw Serenade, they saw Agon, Allegra Kent, and Arthur Mitchell danced the ballet, and dance the pas de deux. They, the Russians adored it. At first there was silence at the end of Agon, and then the crowd erupted. And I think Balanchine was very happy about that, but they kept telling, telling everybody in the, in the Russian newspapers that the prodigal son had returned. And Balanchine said, oh, no, 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 I'm an American. And, and he was very proud of the fact of that. So. Um, uh, yeah, but he was, uh, they, they adored his choreography and they'd never seen it before. So can you imagine seeing those beautiful ballets and, and then seeing Agon in the midst of them all? And it was a huge success. Mm. Could you share with us a little bit about the unique musicality of this pas de deux that we're now going to see from Agon? Well, when I learned it, and Arthur helped me learn it, Balanchine worked with me on it. And it was, it was moments in the music that you heard that you, by that time you had to be at a certain place. There were no counts. And so as Clotilde was saying, there was a metronome and you knew the timing was always going to be what that metronome said. So it made it very easy to be a dancer. You never had to worry that the, the conductor was gonna be too fast or too slow because they knew what the tempi was. And then we knew it. And then we could hit those marks at a certain time. Meanwhile, he let you really um, interpret it the way you wanted to. He never, um, he just, it, it, it was different than other choreographers. He gave you the steps and then you, because he taught us every day, he trusted us, I think. So he knew that we were gonna do right by his ballets. Are there any particular moments that you want us to look out for as we watch? Oh, there, well, there, there are a couple, there's, there's a few, clinks that, that I know that you have to be on. There's an alosacon where, where she gets to second, and there's a bing that we hear. There's a, some walking that goes doom, 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 that we have to be. And that's, that's how he would teach us. He'd say, okay, here it's ta-ta, ta-ta, ta-ti. And it made <laughs> it doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it made sense. Um, so watch for the ta-ta, ta-ti. <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> 
It's so interesting, too, because it's this very modern-looking ballet, but Stravinsky and Balanchine had based it in this 17th-century court dance manual called the Apologie de la Danse. So even in the midst of all this extending of ballet technique, there are these references throughout to almost uh, courtly dancing. And we'll see that at the beginning when they make yes. the, little, the little walks with the feet going like that. Well, and there's a part right in the beginning after they do their diagonal, and then they come back to center and they do a turn, and then the, the young man will lead her around in a very courtly fashion, mm -hmm. and then they start the real pas de deux. So you'll see that also. It's yeah. wonderful. And even in the instrumentation of the first little fanfare, when they're going to rip across the stage, it's for, for the percussion and for the trumpet. So it's almost like a Baroque fanfare, but taken through Schoenberg's 12-tone composition technique. Well, let's welcome to the stage Savannah Durham and L.J. Brown with accompaniment by Elaine Shelton.
Bravo, Savannah and LJ. And Elaine, too. Okay, Mr. Balanchine choreographed 10 leading roles for you, three of which were Stravinsky ballets, and they all premiered the same week in 1972 for the Stravinsky Festival. Scherzo alla Russe, Duo Concertant, and Stravinsky Violin Concerto. Could you take us into the studio and talk a little bit about the creation process for Violin Concerto, which is the next excerpt that we'll see? Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the Balanchine's work ethic was that you get into the studio every day and you work, and it's not a big deal. He said, I'm like a plumber. I come and I do my work, and then I go home and I make a little dinner. And, and so we're, we were always used to his matter-of-fact way of dealing with choreography and choreographing some extraordinary ballets. Um, I don't think, you, you never know if, it's, if a ballet is going to be wonderful or not. So he, uh, he just went about his business and we did too. Um, I did tell you, Silas, that one of the very embarrassing things happened. He was choreographing the beginning of Violin Concerto and he choreographed it and then he put it away for a week. I got sick, so we didn't do it for about a week and none of us could remember it because we were learning all these other ballets. And if you went to any other choreographer, I think they would probably kill the dancers. <laughs> and Balanchine said, that's okay, you know what, we'll start over again. And he redid it and what you see now is what he redid. Uh, it was matter-of-factly, uh, with duo concertant, he never, he did the last scene, the last part of it, the last movement, uh, two or three days before it was going on, and um, didn't tell us about the, the lighting, which is dark, totally black, and sometimes you see a hand or a face. We, did, we knew nothing of that, and it was a, it had a lot of passion in it, which was very unusual for him, and then we found out two days before the ballet was going, what exactly he had in mind. Um, but I will tell you one thing about Duo that I think is very interesting. Jerry Robbins came backstage after it premiered, and he said to Mr. Balanchine, I, how did you have the nerve to have the curtain go up and have the dancers stand for the first movement of the ballet and just the musicians playing that beautiful music, but they weren't moving. And Balanchine said it was easy. I wanted everybody to understand how important the music was. And we were raised on that. We ta he taught us class every day. He choreographed on us. So the music was the most, the, the, that's where you started from and that's what gave him his inspiration. And Violin Concerto was um, just, you know, just the most beautiful, heartfelt music you can imagine. And then you have a wonderful finale, and um, it, it, was, it was very exciting. The whole week was very special, and we had all those ballets done, and we had not one dancer who was injured that week. I don't think that's ever happened in the history of any ballet company before, <laughs> but nobody, everybody wanted to dance, and it was pretty special. Are there any particular moments that we should look for in this second aria, Padida? Uh, you know, he, he di really didn't talk about much, but he did say uh, at one point that the girl, when, when, when the boy takes her back in a slide, is the violin, and he's playing the violin. It's one of the only times I remember him ever saying much about his ballets, but you'll see it. It's towards the end of the ballet, and he just drags her a little bit across the stage, and that is supposedly the violin pl being played. And did you have any thoughts about that beautiful last gesture? I, he, he didn't talk about it. I didn't ask him. Um, 
it was very poignant. And I, I, I think he was, the bow to me was Str to Stravinsky. Uh, that's what I always felt, because that's what we were all doing that whole week, was bowing to Stravinsky and Mr. Balanchine. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Kay. We're now going to see Ask Lacour and Emily Garrity dance the second aria from Violin Concerto, which was choreographed on Kay. We'll have our violin accompaniment from Arturo Dolmoni.
Stravinsky once said, far from implying the repetition of what has been, tradition presupposes the reality of what endures. It appears as an heirloom, a heritage that one receives on condition of making it bear fruit before passing it on to one's descendants. Tonight, we are grateful for the extraordinary artistic fruitfulness of both Stravinsky and Balanchine, of which we are the beneficiaries here at New York City Ballet. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from our guests and that tonight's program has given you insights that you'll be able to take with you and that will inspire you. And I hope that you'll come see these ballets in their entirety this season. Please join me in welcoming back to the stage all of tonight's participants and join me in a round of applause. To learn more about Stravinsky, Balanchine, and their collaboration, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.